the old days of selling where it was, you know, we go in, we give our pitch and we close and overcome objections. That's still in the mental makeup of too many people. You're listening to Mental Selling, the sales performance podcast, a show from Integrity Solutions. This is a podcast for passionate leaders in sales and customer service who are driven by purpose, not just a paycheck. People who want to create broader and deeper connections with customers and their teams by building trust and mastering the critical mental and emotional sides of sales. You're about to hear a conversation from sales leaders and industry experts about what it takes to translate sales knowledge into sales performance. How to change the sales conversation by putting the focus on building relationships and adding value, removing the blockers that keep salespeople from reaching their potential, creating an inspiring learning environment and coaching culture, and ultimately increasing sales achievement and improving customer loyalty. Ready to rise up to the top of your game? Let's get right into the show. Thanks for joining us and welcome back to Mental Selling, your favorite sales podcast. I hope you're having a good day wherever and whenever you might be listening to us. With us today is a great guest, Dr. Tony Alessandra. He is an expert in not only turning prospects into customers, but into promoters. Tony is CEO of Assessments 24-7, a company that offers a variety of, of online assessment tools. And he's also authored more than 30 books, including such titles as The New Art of Managing People, The Platinum Rule, Collaborative Selling, and Communicating at Work. In 2010, Tony was elected into the inaugural class of Top Sales World's Sales Hall of Fame. And in 2012, he was voted one of the top 50 sales and marketing influencers. So I could keep going, but I think you get the point. Tony is a true sales and customer experience expert. And thank you so much for joining us today on Mental Selling, Tony. My pleasure, Will. Glad to be with you. So let's let's get right into it. You're probably as dialed into the sales industry or sales profession as anyone. Well, we're going to narrow in a few minutes, but I want to just start with sort of an open-ended question, which is, what do you think is on the horizon as we sit here in spring of 2022? What do you think is on the horizon for salespeople going forward? Well, certainly more virtual selling. I think what's happened is that uh, once COVID hit and salespeople could not travel as much or at all and had to revert to uh meetings like this, just like we're doing right here, right. Or, or, you know, or Zoom or whatever. And that's going to happen a lot more because the technology has significantly improved and it allows salespeople to make many more calls virtually than they did when they had to actually travel. And, and there's a benefit to the company in that there's less uh, expenses, you know, for travel, et cetera. That's something I see. Another thing I, I see, uh, especially today, is uh, a bigger conflict between sales and production. Mm-hmm. Salespeople always want to make sales. Yeah. You want it when, for how much, and customized in what way? Sure, we can do it. Then they go to production. And production says, you promised what? Right. Why that's, that's always been an issue. But why is it more of an issue today? Because of supply problems right. and because of really employment issues. You know, we can't get enough 
qualified employees. And as a result, what used to be somewhat okay in terms of salespeople promising things and production pushing back a little, but being able to uh, do their best to meet the promises of salespeople, it's not as easy today, not at all. In fact, in my own business, Will, which is the online assessment business, we have sales and our production is really our IT team. So oftentimes our salespeople hear from a, uh, an account uh, or a prospect saying, hey, we would like either a new assessment for you to program for us, or we would like a current assessment that you have, but we want to make these, these uh, customized changes. Yeah. And of course, salespeople want to make the sale, right? Uh, that's a commission for them. But then they go back to our production, our, our IT people, and our IT people say either, you know, there's no way we can do this right now, or what you're promising is something that we, we just can't do, or it's going to take a lot more time and effort to do this project than what you quoted. So, you know, there's, there's, there's pushback. The third and, and final thing, so we talked about virtual selling, we're talking about the conflict between sales and production. A third issue, which has been growing over the years, uh, and it's not specifically aimed at COVID or you know, production problems or inflation, and that's savvier buyers. Definitely. And, yeah, you know, as, as the internet is uh, getting more and more sophisticated, a buyer now, can easily go online and find out information about your company, your products, about competitors, and they can do a lot of research uh, and, and hold your feet to the fire if you are not completely open and honest with them in terms of your strengths and, and weaknesses and how you compare to the competition. So those, those are three areas that I think uh, salespeople are facing going forward. Yeah, and a couple comments on that on this uh, sort of ability to deliver on what the salesperson sells that's that's where real collaboration internally has to happen right absolutely so that you're so that because ultimately the company has to deliver on its its brand promise its customer experience promise etc yeah, absolutely and when you were talking about the the savvy buyers they expect i think from the outset a much deeper and higher quality conversation from the very first minute. They don't want the, who are you and what do you do and how many offices do you have globally and how many years have you been in business sort of thing. They wouldn't be on the phone with you or on Zoom or you know whatever it might be unless they'd already vetted those things, right? So you've got to sort of jump, jump ahead and start adding value from step one. Absolutely. You touched on briefly the issue of, of talent and attracting talent and that's a, a challenge for all organizations today, I think, regardless of the role and function, but in the context of salespeople. And I go back to an article that I read in the Wall Street Journal. It was sometime last summer that talked about how plentiful sales jobs were, and yet recruiters were struggling to attract enough people into the profession. And the sort of subtext of the article was that part of that was the either misperception or negative perception that sales still has. So, so why do you think that is? And, and what is it about a career in sales that people often might fail to consider? Well, you know, I worked my way through college as a door-to-door -door salespeople back in the mid-60s. 
When I eventually, uh, I became a college prof back in 1970, and I was teaching sales. And I did that all the way through 1978. And it was fairly consistent, whether it was in a classroom or when I was out speaking, because I actually uh, became a professional speaker in 1974. But I would ask the audience, what's the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word salesman or salesperson? And I would hear pushy, aggressive, liar, cheat, con. And uh, then it went downhill from there. Uh, so, you know, that bad rep for sales, a lot of people see the word sale or sell as a four-letter word. They just are uncomfortable with it, all right? And a lot of it is not reality today. I mean, today, especially with companies like Integrity Solutions, teaching a more consultative and collaborative approach to selling, a more professional approach. Uh, and and I'm, I'm not even going to use the word selling, although you do. You teach more problem solving and, and you know, interaction with the customer. But the old days of selling where it was, you know, we go in, we give our pitch and we close and overcome objections, that's still in the mental makeup of too many people. So the first reason why people don't go into sales is because of the bad reputation still of salespeople. Another reason is even if people can get over that, they're also, for many people, it's the fear of rejection. You know, in sales, it's sort of like, uh, you know, American, uh, American Idol. You do your thing and you're either going on to the next thing or you're rejected. So a lot of people do not, they just fear rejection. So they don't want to get involved in, in, uh, yeah, in selling, sales. Selling requires a very a thick skin, right? And yes. a degree of persistence to a level that many other professions just don't, you know? That's right. That's right. But, but you're paid accordingly because of that. Yes. Uh, I think the third reason people avoid selling is they really believe that you're either a born salesperson or not which is the furthest from the truth. It's right. like being a born doctor or a born engineer. You're not, right. you, you know, you, you can be, you can be trained. Now, now, are there people naturally who have an ability to connect with people, to persuade people who are more charismatic maybe? Yes, that is true. But my contention is, Give me somebody who, quote, is a born salesperson and don't give them any training whatsoever. And give me somebody who is adequate and put them through, let's say, Integrity Solutions sales training. And I will bet my money every day of the week on a person who is properly trained in, in the skills of professional selling. They, they will beat a born salesperson who has no training whatsoever. Like you said, everybody needs training. You can be a, a quote unquote natural born doctor or lawyer, right? And you still need the professional training to understand the nuances of how to be successful in that profession. Exactly. So I, I, I think you're hundred percent right. And I will tell you this about that article that you mentioned, you know, one thing that people do not really consider when it comes to a profession in selling or a profession being a salesperson, I think is income potential. It, it really is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. If you are a good salesperson, 
there are some salespeople that actually could out earn the senior management of a company. Oh yeah. Right. Absolutely. I've, yeah. I've, I've seen that before. And it's, and it's when that happens, it's typically very, it's well-deserved because they're bringing they're well that deserved. sort of value to the organization. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, also the sales profession allows uh, the salesperson a bit more flexibility in what they do and how they do it than let's say other job responsibilities within a company and much more mobility. A top salesperson could pretty much go anywhere. Right. That, that's not to say that a top salesperson can sell anything. You know, that goes back to that born salesperson mentality. But a really good salesperson, a professional salesperson, a salesperson who has sort of taken on the selling skills of, let's say, Integrity Solutions, that salesperson pretty much can go anywhere and, uh, you know, earn, earn big numbers uh, yeah. of income. Yeah, so there's big rewards. It's, 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 it's a lot of effort. It's a, often a lot of uphill climbing and, like you said, a lot of dealing with rejection and getting knocked down and getting back up, but, but the, the reward is there. And, and I think something you alluded to as well around the, the training is that as a salesperson, again, just like a doctor or, or you know, someone who's in accounting or finance or any other uh, profession, the, the learning is lifelong, right? The learning doesn't stop. You don't go through some sort of one and done training when you're 25 years old, just getting into selling and know everything you need to know. That's an ongoing journey. Right. The first uh, question that you answered, you touched a bit on sort of what was what had shifted when the, the pandemic hit and uh, the shift to virtual selling. And so, again, when everybody was was forced, like it or not, into engaging virtually with with prospects and with customers, what do you think are some of the important lessons that they had to learn and maybe salespeople are still learning along the way to be good at that. And to really, maybe that's in context of some of the things you've written in your career around collaborative selling. So what are, what are some of the things that, that maybe salespeople had to learn and, and again, are maybe still having to learn? I would say that uh, one of the problems that salespeople, and not just salespeople, most business people have had when they move from in-person to virtual is they they did not treat virtual the same way they would have treated an in-person call. So I, I think what we need to do is when you look at how you would groom yourself, how you would dress for an in-person call, you need to do the same thing with a virtual call. But most people did not do that. Right. That's one lesson that some people had to learn and are still learning. Okay, so that's that's number one. An upside, uh, and we, we mentioned this uh, earlier, is when I can do virtual calls, I can do a lot more calls than in person. One of my uh, uh, friends who runs a speakers agency, I was asking her the other day, uh, how is your stable of speakers? How are they doing today when there's very, very few live presentations. And she said, uh, some of my speakers are making more money than they did when, when they were doing live presentations, because there is a couple of them that have done four paid presentations virtually in one day when 
they could only do one live presentation in a day and they were charging pretty much full fee as if they were in person. So we can make a lot more calls. And, and, and so those are two of the real upsides of this whole virtual thing. One, being professional, just like it would be as if you were in person and the ability to make a lot more calls, which means potentially more sales, which means potentially more commission. Right. In there, and there, there's that increased quantity aspect of customer and prospect engagement. But as you're alluding, you, the, the quality of the engagement has to be there too. You've got to be right. able to keep people attentive. Because I think one of the things people learned was that more and more customers and prospects were as and sometimes more willing to engage with them on in virtual settings because the calls could be more brief, they could be more flexible in how they were scheduled, that sort of thing. But again, you had to make sure that you were bringing value from the outset in those discussions and keeping people and understanding how to people keep people engaged in that sort of unique virtual setting in ways that they hadn't before, right? Yeah, but uh, here's an interesting little thing about the virtual setting versus the live setting. Just like our call today, and of course, anybody who's used Zoom knows this, that when you're invited to a, a virtual meeting like this, you and, and you invited me, okay, whether, you know, whatever. So when I clicked the link that you sent me to come into this session, I was put into a waiting room, yeah. okay? And the same thing is true with Zoom. So we are creating, in our company, we are creating a Zoom app. Now I say a Zoom app, but it could be for any virtual setting, but we're starting with Zoom because it's so big. And what it does is when somebody's in the waiting room, it asks them two questions. Okay. And the two questions are, are you more open or guarded? And it gives them a list of adjectives, okay, or behaviors. Right. Are you more open or guarded? Uh, so they just pick one or the other. And then once they hit that, it asks them, are you more direct or indirect? And it has adjectives and they hit submit. And then the person who did the inviting, so let's say that was you, okay? Yeah. And I answered those two questions. Where the typical chat box is on the uh, virtual call, mm -hmm. it tells you what my style is, what my behavioral style is, and okay. gives me some communication do's and don'ts and what motivates you so that when I let you in, I know so much more about you that even if I were on a, a, an in-person call, right. because in an in-person call, I can't say to you, hey, before we sit down and talk, could you answer these two questions for me? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit, but it's so simple. Yeah, it's, well, it's interesting because if that's something, you know, you can research a lot about your prospects and customers, right, on about their company and on their LinkedIn profile and all the different ways that salespeople can and should be doing extensive homework ahead of these calls. But what you can't do, I think, ahead of time is what you're saying is understand how that person likes to communicate. Are they more outward, you know, extroverted, introverted, that sort of thing. And and so that that actually ties into the next thing I wanted to ask you about, because I know this is an area that you're, you have particular expertise in, which is building that instant engagement and rapport and attachment with with prospects up front. And I think in a virtual setting, it's all the more critical that that happens in the first couple of minutes. So what you gave was a great example, but do you think there's anything that salespeople today are forgetting or, or, or 
underestimating or disregarding in that context of how you build rapport and, and connection with prospects in the first, you know, one to three minutes? Yeah. So I, I think, first of all, you don't want to come across as, a, as somebody who's there to sell. You want to come across as somebody who's there to help, not somebody who is pushing, but who is problem solving. Uh, again, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, Will, because yeah. this is exactly what Integrity Solutions does. It's, it's more of how can I come across in building this trust and rapport, how can I come across as somebody who is there to help? All right. So one of the sayings, you know, my, my very first book, Will, back in 1979, which sort of was an outgrowth of everything I was doing from the time I started selling my way in, in college in 1966 all the way through 1978, one of my sayings was, prescription before diagnosis is malpractice. And all too often, what do too many poor salespeople do? They go in and they immediately start their pitch about their product, uh, about their solution, without fully understanding the customer's needs from the customer's point of view. And, and that, that's that whole thing, prescription before diagnosis. So, you know, that whole approach of collaborative selling and consultative selling is so crucial that we go in and in order to build trust, hey, let me find out a little bit about you. Will, tell me a little bit about your business. Tell me a little bit about some of the issues that you're facing with your customers or in your company. So I'm not going in selling. I'm going in doing information gathering. Especially early, early on, because a lot of you know, in virtual settings like this, the first discussion with a customer might be, you know, maybe you're lucky and you get 30 minutes, but oftentimes it's what, you know, 15, 20 minutes. How would you ever possibly jump into some sort of demo without that sort of discussion and fact-finding, building rapport, that sort of thing? That that first call with a customer should almost never include a demo, right? And is it? do you think it's hard for a salesperson to stay focused and like not... You know, they might be chomping at the bit to to jump ahead to talking about their their products and and what they can do and that sort of thing. How do they sort of mentally hold themselves back from that? Yeah, well, so what what you want to do is be able to do a needs analysis, and in some situations, a needs analysis can be a matter of you know ten fifteen minutes, mm -hmm. and then you can in fact go into possibly uh, options or solutions. Uh, you know, there are some products in some environments where there is, in fact, a one call sale. But the more sophisticated the product, uh, the higher cost of the product, the more likely it's going to be a multi call uh, situation. So uh, in those cases, we do uh, a pure needs analysis, uh, at least in the first call, yeah. and then make sure that it's okay to set an appointment for a follow-up or, you know, Will, we've talked a lot about your needs and, and things that are happening. What I'd like is your permission to go back and talk to my team, do a little bit of research, and then come back to you with some options that we can consider uh, that might help, you know, uh, yeah. either help you, what's the terminology, solve a problem or seize a solution. So when I do a needs analysis, I'm really looking for two things, problems and opportunities. 
problems would be something that you are experiencing right now, maybe with your present supplier or you don't, you don't even use my product. So I'm looking for problems that you're experiencing that I can help you solve. Or I'm looking for opportunities that you have not yet taken advantage of that I can help you seize because you're not aware of maybe some new technology or some new product improvements that, that can help you take advantage of something that you have not yet done. So again, problems and opportunities. That's what I look for. Yeah. Part of what can make that process even more complex is the whole idea of, of you know, expanded or complex buying committees. You know, that first call might be one-on-one, but there might be a second, third, fourth, or even fifth person that needs to be on the next call. And then you've got to gather his and her perspectives, you know, from their vantage points on what the needs are, what the shortcomings are, you know, what the risks are, that sort of thing before, again, before you even get into the the product, you know, demo aspect of it. So that's really good advice. In the needs analysis, one of the questions that I would ask is something like this. Well, in addition to yourself, Uh when it comes to a decision like this, in addition to yourself, are there any other people who would be involved in the decision-making process. Right. So I want to get their names. Can you tell me a little bit about Mike? Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, you know, Jane or whatever? Yeah. And, and I want to see if I can get some information about who these people are, what their role is within the company, and what their role is in making the decision. That helps me prep when I come back and maybe I'm facing not just you, but one or more other people, and I know a little bit about them. Yeah, it's important to, like you said, engage really early on in understanding who the other either quote unquote decision makers are or, or influencers or potential champions or obstacles. That's, that's all something a, a sales rep has to, has to map and understand early on. Let's back up a little bit from, you know, we've been talking about what it's like when you're already engaging with a prospect or, or a customer. Let's talk more about what it takes to get them actually an appointment and call booked with them up front, which is requires really good prospecting, which goes back to the persistence and dealing with rejection things we talked about before, right? What do you think, what is a salesperson's approach to prospecting and finding new business have to be today from a, from a, largely from a mental standpoint, not from the sort of blocking and tackling or tactical standpoint, but what does their sort of mindset have to be around uncovering opportunities and, and finding new opportunities and being able to get on the phone with them? Yeah. So there are a few things here. So one thing is, uh, are we doing cold calls or warm calls? A, a lot of salespeople really do not like to do cold calls. Again, it gets back to the fear of rejection, uh-huh. okay? So uh, how do we get more warm, call, warm calls? How we get more warm calls is to get more uh, referrals from our present customers, yeah. right? So, and the best time to ask for a referral from uh, a present customer is when they express their happiness with either you, the company, or the product, I know it used to be taught, again, remember, I go back into my my initial sales goes back to 1966 when I was selling cookware, pots and pans, door to door. We were were taught. uh, 
This was in New York? This was in New Jersey, the, uh, the Jersey Shore. Okay. So yeah, it was a hard sell. There's no question about it. All cold calls, you know, so it, it, it was not easy. But, you know, you have to understand that if, if you have present customers, you want to wait. You, we were taught as soon as you make a sale, ask for referrals. Well, they don't know how happy they are going to be with the product. They haven't even used it yet. Uh -huh. So I think that's an inappropriate time to ask for referrals. You should ask once the customer has expressed their, their happiness, their satisfaction, so to speak. Yeah. And then do some information gathering. You know, okay, you gave me a lead, Will. Tell me a little bit about this. Just not, not dissimilar to what I just was asking about who else is on the uh, buying committee here. I want to ask some information about this referral that you gave me and make sure that I follow up on this referral and keep you in the loop so that I can get additional referrals from you. So that's one way to get warm leads. Another way is to look into our present book of business, our present customers, and basically say, okay, some customers are more profitable. Some customers are more loyal. Some customers are actually easier to sell. Can I look into my customer database and determine who those might be so that when it comes to prospecting, I can prospect for the top 20% and not just prospect, you know, for anybody and, and everybody. That, that's another key thing. It's sort of like what people are doing today with uh, what they call SEO, sales uh, optimization, uh, like with, let's say, with Google or Facebook, but let's say Google yeah. AdWords. We use yeah. Google. We search for customers with Google AdWords. And, and we try to refine who we are looking for. We look at, at our present customer base, who typically buys from us, who continues to buy, who are you know, our top customers. So when we can identify that, we can then hone in in our sales engine optimization, that SEO, to get better leads. Our lead generation, now this goes to prospecting, so there's different ways to prospect. And in today's environment, again, with technology today, my salespeople on my assessment team actually don't do much prospecting at all because we, like last month, we got over 500 leads for three salespeople. It's very difficult for them to even follow up on 500 leads. But one, one of the ways that they do prospecting also is they keep in touch with their present customers. And when a customer, which has happened recently, uh, when customers are leaving one job to go to another job, we want to do two things. Number one, make sure we know where that present customer is going. So now it's a lead for a new company, but also asking that customer who took your place in the account that you just left, who's now a new prospect. Right. Uh, so, so there's a lot of interesting things. Uh, and and uh, often in, in that example, you can find a lot of that information yourself through just through tools like like LinkedIn. But but you're right. It, it's one of those things a salesperson has to keep on top of because you can't ignore an account for three years, go back to it. And then Sally and Joe and Jane and Jim have all left and then you That's have to right. do digging to try to go find them and try to remind them in some cases remind them who you are and the relationship you had before if you're doing that on a consistent basis you know then maybe you can follow them much more closely 
to those those new organizations. And I think yeah. another thing you, you you touched on is that idea of sort of where a, a rep should be spending their time. And, and I think that's partly where the sales leader should have involvement by talking to them about where their more profitable deals are, right? Where they tend to win. So where are your better or worse win rates? Because that can help focus or refine where they're spending their time, right? Yeah, and well, one of the things that we do, which is exactly what you're saying right now, is uh, every quarter we generate an Excel doc that shows every customer, and we have thousands of customers, so it's a big list, and it shows what that customer, what they did that quarter, and what they have done the pre, you know, the past year. And, and so we, we tell our salespeople to look at this list, and the list is done where if, if we're looking at the quarter, it's from most usage all the way down to least usage. And we ask our salespeople to look at your, your accounts and see if there is a big jump. All right, so somebody this quarter did 200 units, but over the past 12 months, they did only 300. What, what's happened to make them do more? But more importantly, I want my people to look at somebody who is only doing 50 this quarter, but for the year has done 700. What has changed? I want to make sure that I know that I am proactive to find out what is going on. Yeah. We've talked before on, on this podcast with other guests about how one of the things that sales is, is it's detective work, right? Yes. It's, you've got to do that due diligence and digging because the data is there. The trends are there if you're focused and looking in the right places. And you can't, going back to what you talked before about sort of the, the, the um, research customers are doing about you before you ever get on the phone with them, you can't expect them to offer up all of these things. You have to be able to find it yourself. And part of what adds good value early on in a customer conversation is being able to demonstrate those things, like you said, proactively versus waiting for them to tell you, right? Absolutely. One, one last thing about prospecting, and it's something that I was taught back in the mid-60s by a great sales manager, great sales manager, and it was we had a contest that if you sold X amount of cookware within a 10-week period of time, you got a big bonus. And so it was in, in seven weeks, I was only $1,000 away in sales from hitting that that number. And the next two weeks, what I did is I, in my prospecting, instead of prospecting people in, I was prospecting them out. I was making decisions saying, well, that's not a good prospect. That's not a good prospect. And for two weeks, Will, wow. I made zero sales. Now I'm in the last week and my sales manager, I'm telling you, this guy was incredible. He said, Tony, what you need to do is sell by the numbers. And instead of saying that you only make money when you make a sale, what you need to do is look at how many calls do you need to make to get an appointment? How many appointments do you need to make to make a sale? And then what you do is when you make a sale, what's your commission? So let's say the commission, let's say I have to make 
call on 10 prospects to get three appointments to make one sale. 10 prospects yeah. I'm calling on, three appointments, one sale. In that sale, let's say I make $100. He said, so your mental thinking right now is that you made nothing from nine calls and $100 on one call, when in fact, you had to make the 10 calls to get that one sale. So why don't you look at it this way, Tony? Every single prospect that you're calling on, you're making $10. Even when you make the sale, you didn't make $100, you made $10. And, and so every prospect, you're making $10. He said, now, if in fact, every call you make, whether they hang up on you, whether you make an appointment or not, you're making $10. He said, so in this coming week, Tony, how many calls are you going to make? And, and I said, my God, I, you know, to get that $1,000, I got to make at least 100 calls, but I'm going to make more than 100 calls. He said, how long, if you're making $10 per call, how long are you going to take for lunch each day? I said, lunch? I'm losing money on lunch. You know, I'm going to make as many calls as possible. I'm making $10 per call. And even when somebody hung up on me, ka-ching, I made $10. It changed my whole mental ability, my whole mental thinking about prospecting. And I think if sales that you know it would be it's a really good perspective and and on you know the, the title of this podcast is mental selling and we want to focus all on those sort of mental and internal and emotional aspects of of selling and i think what you just described is one of the best examples or anecdotes i've heard yet that can really again you know there's a lot of ebbs and flows ups and downs in selling but if you have that mindset that is really going to sustain you versus, like you said, that sort of negative outlook of like, oh, well, I've got to do this, but you know, 90% of the time I'm not going to reach somebody or they're not going to reply or that sort of thing. That's a really good example. Yeah. Oh, by the way, that 10th week, I sold over $2,000 worth of uh, cookware. So I made the bonus and got that big commission too for the $2,000 in sales. Slow, slow and steady wins the race, right? Yeah, that's it. So we, we've talked about, you know, in your business uh, of assessments and, and we've you know, you touched on things like understanding people's behavior styles. What do you think companies that, that leverage assessments for to help their salespeople, what does that help solve for? Or what does that help deliver for them down the road? Yeah, so, you know, assessments play a lot of different parts in within a company. You know, typically, if you go back to the entire assessment process, and I'm sure that you've experienced this at least once, as have I in the past, that many assessments are what we call one and done. You take the assessment, you read it, you say, wow, you know, it either describes me or it doesn't describe me, I'm gonna file it away and that is it. Yeah. And even with the company, they may have a lot of people taking the assessments, but, but sometimes it's just a one and done. And I think in the assessment process, it has to go beyond that. So I think assessments first and foremost are used for personal development, all right? How can I take the output of this report and how can it help me identify my strengths and my struggles and help me improve the struggles or certainly maximize my strengths? That, that's one of the things. And to your point, those strengths or, or you know, shortcomings or what, those can change over time, right? They can. They absolutely can. Uh, you know, my natural style is a more dominant, director-driven personality style. 
One of my natural weaknesses is listening. I don't listen very well. I know that. I know that. And as a result, I can consciously become a better listener each and every time I'm, I'm dealing with somebody. Doesn't mean that I will always be a good listener. It's something that I have to consciously think about because it, it's not natural to my style, but I can adapt. Yeah. And that is the key. I think that what we do in assessments and what integrity does in their assessments is it helps you become more adaptable. How do I adapt my style if I'm dealing with a customer who is faster paced than me or slower paced than me or more bottom line uh, task oriented than I am or more relationship oriented than I am? How do I go about adjusting my pattern if I know the person's style. So that's one of the keys in dealing with assessments. But assessments go beyond that. Can I use assessments to, there, there are such things as what we call 360 degree assessments, mostly used for leaders, but can be used for sales. And I don't know why it's not used as much in sales. Yeah, they should. Imagine me taking an assessment, a 360 degree sales assessment, and it measures me on my preparation, my information gathering, you know, all the things that we teach in a good collaborative sale. And then I'm answering these questions about how well I perform in these various areas. But then I send it out to my sales manager, to my fellow salespeople who see what I do day in and day out. And most importantly, Will, to my customers. And then I get this feedback and it tells me, hey, wow, I thought I was performing better in this area, but my customers say I'm not. Or I didn't think I was performing as well in this area, but my customers and sales manager says that I am. So that kind of feedback is absolutely crucial. But assessments, my gosh, team building, conflict resolution. Imagine a salesperson not getting along with the sales manager butting heads with a sales manager. Now, I know that rarely happens well, right? Right, right, right. (laughs) Yeah. But see, when I can then do, if I know my style and the the, uh, sales manager's style, we can do a collaboration report where we mesh both assessments, behavioral assessments, and we can look at the strengths and struggles of our relationship. So there's a lot of things that can be learned you know, with, with assessments. And, the, and those styles, attributes, whatever you want to talk about that, that assessments can help uncover as you're being, you know, developing as a salesperson or, or, or a sales leader. It's, it's not that those different attributes are good or bad, better or worse. They're simply what, what came to mind for me when you were talking was simply self-awareness of where you have strengths and relative weaknesses so that you can be, again, self-aware, just self-conscious of them in context of customer conversations, conversations with a sales manager, you know, a peer or a colleague internally, that sort of thing. It, I, I think what part of what you're saying is, is, you know, it helps give you some degree of self-empathy for what you're good and bad, good and not as good at, and just something to, to target on self-improvement over time. Again, going back to the idea that that being a good salesperson isn't something that you check a box on early in your career. It's something that you're constantly 
working on. Yeah, and I think the assessment, at least from a sales perspective, it allows us to practice adaptability. And what is adaptability? Mm -hmm. It's your ability as a salesperson to adjust your selling style to match the customer's buying style. I think that if a salesperson sold everybody the same way, they will not be as successful as a salesperson who knows how to adapt to the customer's buying style. So that that's crucial. Yeah, I, I think that's excellent advice. I, that that mindset again, you know, mindset and just self awareness of matching your selling style with that customer's buying style and not trying to always put a square peg in a round hole, right? You're, you're going to progress more opportunities and win more deals and keep more loyal customers in the end, right? Absolutely. What you, related to this and this, you know, the area of an ass of assessments is often thought of in context of training and developing and, and onboarding salespeople. What, what's something that you think today in your purview that companies are getting most wrong about how they they evaluate and attract and, and onboard new salespeople. Yeah, I, I have an opinion on that. So I think uh, a lot of companies hire salespeople based on experience as opposed to competence. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, this salesperson has 10 years experience in our industry. Well, is it really 10 years experience where they have grown over the 10 years or in more situations than you can imagine, is it one year of experience repeated 10 times over? Does that make sense? Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Going, so, going, going deeper than what's on their LinkedIn profile or resume to understand where their true sort of career arc has been, right? Exactly. Also, too many companies hire based on subjective information as opposed to objective information. So for instance, we look at a resume and make certain decisions about a resume. But to me, a resume is like a balance sheet with no debits. Think about that. Mm -hmm. How many times do you ever read a resume where there's something negative on it? Never. Right. So, you know, so there's bias in that. What about the interview? The interview is, hey, you know, are you like me or not like me? Do I like you or don't I like you? It's very subjective. Many, many people who do the interviews like to hire people in their own likeness. Okay. Yes, they do. Often, often to the organization's detriment. Yes. In the context of just trying to be, bring in all the same sorts of people, you know, like them. Yeah. Exactly. And then, and then what about uh, recommendations or referrals from past employers, past employers, employers shy away from saying anything negative about a past employee because of the fear of getting sued. Mm -hmm. So they talk in generalities and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe focus on one single strength and avoid all the other negatives about that individual. The beauty about an assessment, to me, an assessment when it comes, especially when it comes to hiring, but an assessment is like an MRI of the mind. Think about that. So yeah. what it is, is it tends to be more objective. It gives me another, a different look about this individual. Now, I do it goes, not. It goes layers do, deeper, right? It does. It yeah. does. But, but keep this in mind. Do not 
make a decision to hire or not to you know give somebody a better position or not uh, based on a single assessment or, or even two or three assessments. And, and, and just so that you know, when it comes to the hiring and selection process, using two assessments are better than one, three assessments better than two, but then it becomes a decreasing yeah. improvement. But, but use an assessment in the hiring process as just another piece of the puzzle along with their resume, their experience, their education, the interview, et cetera. It's just another piece. I would say just off the top of my head, probably not more than 20% of what goes into the decision process. But what, what assessments are, are more objective data than the subjective things that we typically have used before. And I think there's another big thing when it comes to assessments, and that is benchmarking. Hmm. And benchmarking is simply saying, hey, we have these salespeople that are really successful. Can I find a new salesperson who matches the mentality or the behavior of these salespeople? Or, you know, is there a way that I can use this process where I can match a candidate against some sort of a benchmark of an ideal salesperson? So those are some of the things that that should and, and should not be done. That's very helpful. That's really good. Thank you. The last question I have for you is, so something I've seen you say and, and, and write is, quote, professionals are defined not by the business they're in, but by the way that they are in business. Can you elaborate on, on that in context for, for salespeople and maybe sales leaders, what that means? Yeah. You know, so I think uh, out in the general business world, we say, oh, an attorney is a professional. A doctor is a professional. And a, a CPA is a professional. That's not right. You know, there's there's attorneys who are shysters. Uh -huh. There are doctors who are quacks. You know, I can go on. So it, it's not the job that you're in that determines whether you are a professional. It's the way you are in that job. And I think there are many salespeople who can be identified as a professional, as professional as a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant uh -huh. because of the way they're in business. And I believe that if there are salespeople out there who are honest, who are out there to help, who are more consultative, who actually practice the skills and behaviors taught by Integrity Solutions, then we're dealing with professionals. Uh, you know, there are some people that say that sales is not a profession wrong. You know, a, prof a professional, there are professions and there are professionals. Yeah. And a professional is the way you go about doing your business. And that, that's, again, going back to what we, we talked about at, at the beginning of the, you know, the, the misconceptions around selling or, and maybe some of the difficulty that companies have today or just in general when attracting people into the sales profession is, like you said, it's, it's not the profession, it's how you carry yourself professionally makes or breaks you. Absolutely. Right? It's, it, it's what, it's what sets great salespeople apart and it's, and, and customers can, they'll see right through you one way or the other, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I have one salesperson on our team who was in support. That's all they, they did. They were support. No, I'm not a salesperson. I've never sold before. Uh, I, I don't think I can sell 
And we had to, we wanted to move this person into sales and, and said to the person, look, you're not selling. All you're doing is helping people. You're finding out what their need is, why they're contacting us, and you are helping them. So slowly but surely, that person became one of our top salesperson, uh, top salespeople, simply because the whole mentality of I'm not a salesperson, I'm really a helper, a consultant. Yeah. And if you have that mindset, that's again going to sustain you, not only sustain you through you know hard times and rejection, but but really help you win that much more and 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 serve customers that much better. So I have. Before we wrap up, I have one last question. It's more of a it's more of a personal nature, but it's a critical question. So, Tony, if I'm not mistaken, you're of Italian descent, correct? Yes. And you're from the New York City area, is that correct? That's correct. Okay. So I'm of half Italian descent. My father's family was all born and raised in Brooklyn. So is it sauce or gravy? Well, we always call it gravy. Of always. Okay, yeah. glad, you, glad you said that. That's an, always an important distinction for anybody out there. Yeah. And, and by the way, Will, first of all, three of my grandparents are from Sicily, one from Naples. Part of the time we lived in Brooklyn, in the Bensonhurst section of Brooklyn, which uh, was all Italian. In those days, I never, ever heard the word pasta. <laughs> it was either spaghetti or macaroni. Macaroni, macaroni, yes. Not pasta. Never heard the word pasta until whatever, you know, today. My, my father's family was from uh, Avenue I in Flatbush. Yeah. That area, yeah. So thank you, Tony, so much for being here. This has been really good. I think you brought some really interesting and new perspectives that we've, we've yet to, to have on this, on this show. And again, mental selling, it's, it's all about those internal mental and emotional aspects that really make or break a successful salesperson. I think you brought some great perspectives here. So thank you. You can find Dr. Tony Alessandro on his website, which is assessments24by7.com. So that's assessments24x7.com. Also more personal information about Tony at alessandra.com with two S's. And you can find Tony on Twitter at, at Tony Alessandra, or of course you could find him on LinkedIn. So um, hopefully everybody listening here that you've got some really good takeaways and uh, we appreciate you listening as always. Tony, thank you again so much for, for being with us. My pleasure, Will. Thanks for having me. Thanks to everyone for listening and have a great day. At Integrity Solutions, we believe you need a different approach to sales and service to succeed in tomorrow's world. We know that sales performance isn't just about what you know, it's about who you are. We are performance experts who enable sales teams to build trusted customer relationships with integrity at their core. For over 50 years, Integrity Solutions has specialized in award-winning, innovative sales, service, and coaching training solutions that fuel performance, grow talent, lift up customers, and elevate leaders. Our solutions connect knowledge, skills, and values to help our clients embrace their roles with a greater sense of purpose and outperform year after year. No one is better at unleashing the mental side of selling. Learn more about our unique approach and the clients and industries we proudly serve at IntegritySolutions.com. You've been listening to Mental Selling, an Integrity Solutions podcast. 
Stay in touch with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player and following us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Please give us a rating, leave a comment and share episodes you love. That helps us keep empowering sales and service leaders to master the mental side of selling. Until next time, let's go out and create amazing customer experiences.